I was covering that issue one stuff pretty fast. I hope you got it, but I think that's probably the biggest moral issue that you'll vote on in your lifetime, maybe. So uh, let's keep in mind. But, but now we got that covered, so I want to jump into Life of David. And uh, we, we want to be flying. Sometimes, have you ever noticed I kind of rush through things? Anybody ever feel like I do that? Well, there's a reason for that. You know, we're trying to cover the life of David, and we want to cover the life of David and get all the way through it. But I don't like to leave things out because it's all tied together. But I want to get it done because we have a series coming up after this where we're dealing with stuff in our culture, and we're trying to get that done before we celebrate Christmas. So are you with me? All right, that's what's going on. All right, life of David. David was 15, remember, when... Samuel, the last judge, came and anointed him with oil to become the next king. But there was already the first king, King Saul, who sat on the throne during that time. David basically, his, only his family knew it. He went back to shepherding. But then he went to deliver some supplies to his older brothers who were in Saul's army. And then there he noticed that the entire army was being defied by a champion that they had named Goliath that was like nine feet tall. And so when he heard this... He got riled up, and he actually ends up killing Goliath. He becomes a national hero, a household name, and he joins the service of King Saul, even though he's underaged. And so he becomes a general, a leader. But Saul is jealous of David, and as his jealousy increases several times, he attempts to kill David, but David gets away. And then David goes on the run for about 10 years. It gets so bad while he's on the run that at some time he decides, I'm going to go over to the enemy. And while he's on the run, he picks up about 600 men. They're kind of like mercenaries. They're his band. And they cross over to enemy lines to Philistia, which is controlled by the Philistines. And he is awarded a town called Ziklag, a Philistine town for him and his 600 men and their families to live. Remember, he had just narrowly avoided being in a battle against Israel where he would have been on the wrong side. During that battle, Saul and his son Jonathan, David, David's good friend, and two other sons were killed in the battle. It's while David is back in Ziklag that he gets the news that Saul and Jonathan and two other brothers of Jonathan have died. And so he hears that. He's in Ziklag. He basically asks God, okay, Saul's gone now. What should I do? And remember, David refused to take Saul's life, even though God gave him an opportunity to do that twice. He said, no, I'm not going to kill God's anointed. So he kept refusing to do that. But now Saul is dead and it's not at David's hand. So David asks God, should I go back to Judah? And if I do go back to Judah, what town should I go back to? And God says, yes, go back to Judah. And the town you should go to is Hebron. And Hebron is just a town in, in southern Israel, uh, just west of the Dead Sea. And so he goes, he and his men go there. And this whole time, notice that David waits on God's timing to become king. He never takes the matter into his own hands. And now finally, David, after about a year and a half, David and his men and their families go back to Judah and they settle in and around Hebron. 
And so here's what happens. So David then is made king of Judah. This happens when David is 30 years old. 2 Samuel, we're in 2 Samuel, out of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came and there, meaning Hebron, anointed David king over the house of Judah. All right, so it's been a long time in coming, but now it's happened. The strongest and the, the most numerous tribe in Israel is Judah. They've made David king, but it's not all of Israel. Verse eight, but Abner, remember he was Saul's general, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. That's just a representation of all the other 11 tribes. Verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, one tribe, followed David. So now when this happens, uh, the, there's a civil war that develops. 11 tribes are following Ishbosheth, who Abner set up, and then one tribe, Judah, is following David. And during this time, David's general named Joab, who happens to be David's nephew and also brother to Abishai, who we talked about last Sunday when they went in and stole Saul's spear and his jug. That was Abishai with David. Uh, David's general, Joab, meets Abner and his forces, Abner's Ishbosheth, was Saul's now Ishbosheth's general. And they meet at a pool and they have their men with them. And there's, there's a little lake in front of them, but they're able to speak across the lake. And then Abner says, hey, why don't, why don't we have a contest? 12 on 12. You send over your best 12, we'll send over our best 12, and they'll meet and they'll fight it out and we'll see who wins. And so they decide to do that. And when that happens, the 12 from each side end up they all grab each other's head with one hand and stab the man they're fighting with their other hand, with a sword. And so all 24 guys die. And so that begins a battle right there in that spot. And so this commences the civil war between Judah's clan and the rest of Israel. Now, there's something that's significant that happens in this, this particular battle that I don't want to skip. And when we get to this, remember, this is details about a battle that happened 3,000 years ago that we get to read about. And so here's how it goes. 2 Samuel 2, beginning with verse 18, one of the things that happens in this first battle. Now, the three sons of Zariah... Now, Zariah, this is a female name. This is David's sister. So now the three sons of Zariah were there. Joab, that's David's general, and Abishai, we've talked about him, and Azahel. And Azahel was as swift-footed as one of the gills, which is in one of the gazelles, which is in the field. Azahel pursued Abner, and this is during the battle, and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. 
So Abner said to him, turn to your right or to your left, take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Azashel was not willing to turn aside from following him. You get the picture here? There's a battle. In the middle of this battle, one of Joab's brothers start chasing their general, Abner. And everybody knows this guy's reputation, he's fast. He's like as fast as I am probably, maybe even faster. He's quick. And so he's known for his speed. And Abner, the general, notices he's being followed. This guy's chasing him. He can't shake him. And then he realizes, oh, I can't shake him. This is Azahel. This guy is fleet of foot. And so he just calls back, hey, follow somebody else. You know, go after somebody else. Why should I have to kill you, basically? Picks it up in verse 22. Abner repeated again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? These are competing generals, but they know each other. He's like, hey, I don't want to kill you because I'll be talking to your brother someday. It's a bad deal. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell there and died on the spot. This is actually so gory in the text. This happens a few times when we read about battles. Somebody will get killed in some extra gruesome way and when other people come along, they stop and go, whoa, that's ugly. I didn't know that would happen. The blunt end of a spear, man, that made a mess of Azel. That's what happens in this. So Azahel gets killed and then Joab... And his brother, they see that Azahel is dead. And so they go after him. Joab and Abishai, they start fleeing, they, they start chasing Abner. And they're pressing the battle, because Joab's in charge, longer than a battle would normally go. They wouldn't usually take a battle into the evening. And so finally, Abner, who's being chased now by Joab and Abishai, he gets some men together and they kind of make a last stand because in this battle David's men are getting the better of Abner's men and so they make a, a last stand on a hill it's almost dark and Abner calls out to Joab at the base of the hill as they're getting ready to attack and he says hey how long are we going to fight are we going to fight till we're all dead are we going to fight until we've killed all of our brothers and then Joab calls off the attack Abner and his men after nightfall, they, they get out of there and they head back to their place. And so that's what, that's what happens. And then after Joab calls off the attack and Abner escapes, it summarizes this way in 2 Samuel 3.1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. So this is the situation. Now, back at, in the house of Saul, what happens is Abner, the general, is the power broker. He has single-handedly made Ishbosheth the king. So, and, and remember, Ishbosheth is, is not a fighter. He doesn't seem to be in the army or anything because you know, three of his brothers and his dad all got killed in a war. It doesn't seem like Ishbosheth was there at all. So Abner's the power broker. And while they're there at some point, and we don't know if this is true or not, what the charge, but Ishbosheth charges Abner with 
messing with one of the women in his harem. He accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his wives or concubines. And so this, and again, we don't know if it's true or not, but this offends Abner. We don't know if he's just innocent and he's offended or he's guilty and he's thinking, look, I made you king. You need to back off. I'll do what I want. Either way, Abner's highly offended and so high, Abner is done with Ishbosheth. So 2 Samuel 3.12. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place saying, whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. Abner's saying, hey, let's make an agreement and I'll unite the kingdom under you. Then Abner, verse 20, then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. So, here, they, made, so they come to an agreement. Abner's done with Ishbosheth. He's gonna unite everybody. He's the power broker. He's gonna unite everybody under David. So they have this big feast. Everything's going well. Abner and his 20 men leave in peace. In the meantime, Joab, commander of David's army, he's out on a raid. And so he gets there after Abner's left and then he hears the news. And he is not liking it, right? He's, he's beefing with Abner and all of a sudden David has made an agreement with him, does not like it. And so he tells David, he goes into David and says, hey, this is wrong, you shouldn't do this. He's gonna betray you, this guy's not loyal. He's just coming to see your defenses. He's gonna trick you, this isn't good. And, and David's not having any of it. So then he takes matters in his own hand, verse 26. Then Joab came out from David. He sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David didn't know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Azahel, his brother. So you see the picture? Joab gets there. He's not liking the peace treaty. Abner and his men have already left. Without David knowing it, Joab says, hey, there's some more details you didn't get. You need to come back and get the rest of the stuff. You know, there's some other things we need to talk about. Abner does it. They're at peace now. And then Joab murders him in the gate, which is kind of interesting because actually Hebron was a city of refuge and you weren't supposed to take vengeance inside the gate. He's, he's right there. So who knows what's going on? But you don't need to know that. But anyway, that's all happening. So David hears about it. Abner's been murdered and he grieves. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who are with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the buyer. That, that's a funeral procession and David is in it. And thus they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And so David shows true sorrow that even though this guy's been his enemy, he didn't deserve to be murdered under false pretenses. Verse 35. Then, so David is mourning, and that involves him fasting. Verse 35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. 
So on that day, all and so on that day, all the people there, that's everybody in Hebron, and all of Israel, that's everybody, knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, the son of Ner. So David's it shows his integrity, it shows his innocence, everybody gets that, everybody notices, hey, this guy did not want this guy to be killed. Second Samuel 4 1. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. So now he doesn't know what Abner's doing, but Abner's his number one general. Abner's the fighter, not Ishbosheth. And he hears, he hears his number one general dead, and he's dead in Hebron. And he's kind of freaked out about that and as well as the rest of Israel. What happens then is Ishbosheth has two other army commanders, not as high as Abner, but they decide to get rid of Ishbosheth. They come to Ishbosheth's house. It's in the middle of the heat of the day. And in that time, if you're around your house, sometimes they took siestas like right after noon in the hottest part of the day. They came in. Uh, acting like they were getting provisions for their men, but they went into Ishbosheth's bedroom and they murdered him on his bed and decapitated him, took the head. These are fun stories, aren't they? They took the head and they fled the rest of that day and all night to take Ishbosheth's head to David. So they take the head to David, they meet with David, they think David's going to rejoice, but we've already seen this played out once before, right? Right? Yeah. It, and David's not happy that they murdered Ishbosheth. And so David has these two guys executed on the spot. And, uh, and so finally, though, because of this, David's anointed king of all Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 5, 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over Israel and Judah. So he's king for 40 years, but only 33 years king of everything. So, and, and what, what's the moral of that that we've been talking about? Number one, God, uh, David waits on God's timing. David's known since he was 15, since he was a teenager, he was supposed to be the next king. But he never takes matters into his own hands. He waits for God's timing. Even though this is supposed to happen, it's supposed to be the right thing, he doesn't do it. He doesn't make it happen. He waits on God. And that's a lesson for all of us as followers of God. And I'll tell you, here's where I, can I just share, this is kind of an unrelated story, but this is where I see this playing out every time. As a counselor, you know, and pastor for decades here at Grace. You know, sometimes I'll counsel with people, and this is the way it always goes when I counsel with young people who've never been married and they're waiting, you know, they, they want to get married. You know, they want to get married, so they're praying, 
God, bring me the person, the Christian, you know, I want to marry, you know, I want this to happen. They want it so bad they can taste it. And then it just doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. And they get discouraged. What am I doing wrong? I'm not praying hard enough. So they start praying. And then sometimes they take matters into their own hands and say, well, maybe I shouldn't marry a believer because Fred over here, he likes me. He's willing to get married. Maybe I'll just go that route and maybe God will work it all out. God's saying, don't do that. But then they'll come in for counsel. And here's what, here's what happens. I've seen this over and over. Probably you have too. And then, they'll get, and then they'll finally come in and they'll say, I've given up. I'm like, what do you mean you've given up? I've given up. Maybe God doesn't want me to be married. Maybe I should just be single my whole life. I'm going to forget this search and I'm going to forget looking for somebody. I'm just going to follow God. And then what happens? Bam. I mean, within a month. Hey, Pastor, I found somebody. They're a great Christian, and we're going. Yeah, it's the way it always happens. Anybody ever see that play out before? Yeah, that's weird how that happens. As soon as they say, forget all this, I'm just going to focus on God, bam, that's when God brings the person in. Because you need to know, hey, follow God first. But anyway, that's, that's a side note. Let me keep moving here. Let's, let's get where we were at. All right, so... Damn, just sharing that, I lost where I'm at. All right, so David unites Israel. The first thing he does, now he's king of all Israel, is he conquers the city, Jebus, which is gonna be Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem. We see that in 2 Samuel 5, 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Jebusites are leftover Amorites whom God had judged uh, for their sin, but they're now in this place, and the name of the city at that time was Jebus, and so these Jebusites were there, and David's like gonna, t because they've never conquered Jerusalem, the city. So, sorry about that. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said, they said to David, this is trash talk, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. They're thinking, David can't enter here. It's trash talk. They're saying, if all of our soldiers were blind or lame, they could still repel your invading force. No problem. Because we're in a fortified city. Nobody can take it. And so, of course, they do that. And what's the next verse? Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. The city of David is a little different than modern Jerusalem. It's right there. But the city of David, as we look at, I think we have a, an image here. The top of that image is the Temple Mount. And so to the right, that valley is called the Central Valley. I'm sorry, to the left. To the right, that's the Kidron Valley. And then below the Temple Mount is this walled city. That's the ancient city of David. That's how Jerusalem started. And the reason that it was placed there is because halfway up this hill was a natural spring called Gihon Spring. And then that's what you see, that wall jetting out to the right. That's fortified wall that goes out to protect that spring. Because the way they warred against cities is they laid siege to cities. And then they did that to starve them out. And then the first thing you would need in an area like this is water. So here they had a way of getting water. Actually, what they did is they dug a tunnel, a shaft, through the rock, 40 feet down inside the walls to the spring. 
and that assured them that they could get to the spring even while they were under attack. Now, so that's the, how the original city looked. So let's flip the slide. And so this is how it looks more today. This, you can't see the Dome of the Rock. Wait, that silver thing's not, that's the moss near the Dome of the Rock. But the Dome of the Rock is off the picture to the right. But right in this southeastern corner of the walled city of Jerusalem, that rubble you see in the foreground, but above the, above the road, that's the ancient city of David. Here's how it looks today, a little more close look. It's being you know, excavated as we talk. You can go there and walk through the city of David from 3,000 years ago. You can go check that out today. And so, and, and why do I bring that out? Well, one thing is on, on the news, how many have heard, have heard that people are in this war with Gaza, that people are calling Israel colonializers or whatever, you know, the colonialists, Israel. Hey, Israel's been in Jerusalem for 3,000 years before there were any Palestinians, before any of that. Palestine came from the name, it's really a... a perversion of the word Philistines, but Philistines weren't there that long and there's really no connection. But even the Philistines, Abraham was there before the Philistines and Philistines started conquering. I didn't tell the last services, so this means I'm going long. Philistines were conquering from the west, the land, and Israel's conquering from the east across the Jordan River. So they're both conquering the land, but anyway, that's another story. But the point is, they're not colonizers. They've been there longer than anybody. They were there before the 3,000 years ago. They had already been there before David, hundreds of years, right? All right, some of you don't know that. All right, so David, he takes the city, and here's how he takes the city. How'd that happen in one verse? He took over the city because he challenges someone in his army. Hey, I think we could take this city because he knows about the tunnel. If you got to the spring, go underwater, get to the tunnel, climb the vertical 40 feet shaft, you'll then be inside the city walls, and then if you can fight your way to the gate, you can open the gate and we can all go in and take the city. Joab says, I'll do that, and he does, and they conquer the city. There's no siege. It goes really fast. Bada boom, bada bing. By the way, that shaft, that tunnel that went straight down to Gihon Springs, you can see that today. It's called Warren Shaft. Warren Shaft, because in 1867, just after our Civil War, a British archaeologist named Charles Warren was in Palestine, and he discovered this shaft that the Bible talks about from 3,000 years ago. It's actually filled with uh, trash and debris, but he was able to clear it out and find it. You can go through the shaft today. As a matter of fact, some people in our church have been through this shaft 3,000 years ago. Anyway, all right, so... Keep going. So David, after he gets, he has Jerusalem. Now he has a capital that's more centrally located. And so that's working well for everybody. Now, David continues to seek God's will. And then he defeats the attacking Philistines. That's how this plays out. And then 2 Samuel chapter 5, 10. David became greater and greater. For the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized, so they come, this foreign king says, oh, you're in this new city, I'm gonna build you a palace. They do, and they, verse 12, and David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake 
of his people Israel. So David kind of sits back and realizes, not only has God made me king, not only do all the 12 tribes say that I'm the king, but even foreign leaders now, other kings are recognizing me as king. And so then David decides to do something else to unite his people. He decides to move the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital, Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you probably know what that is, but the Ark of the Covenant is after um, the Jewish people were delivered from Egypt after 400 years of slavery, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they conquered Palestine, which by the way, them conquering the Canaanites, that was judgment on them from God, the Bible tells us, but that's another story. But while they were in the wilderness, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses is there. And then God instructs them, hey, you need to make a wooden box about four foot by two foot by two foot and cover it with gold. And it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that are two cherubims like angels. And they will stretch their wings. And it sort of represents the mercy seat of God, where God dwells. Inside that box are some key things from their history, specifically when they were wandering through the wilderness. There are the tablets, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments are in the box. And also uh, Aaron's budding rod, another story that we won't get into, is in the box. And also there's a sample of manna, how cool is that, in the box. So all that's in there. But what had happened, so now David wants to get it. But what had happened was, right before Saul became king, the Philistines invaded uh, Israel and they captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it back to Philistia. These are the same five lords of the Philistines that we've been talking about, the same generation. And so they take the Ark and they take it back to their cities. These are the five royal cities. We went over this, remember? Gaza, Gath, Ashkelon, you hear about all this all the time in the news. These five cities are the Philistines, royal cities. Well, they take it when they get the ark. These cities then would come under God's judgment and people were getting sick with disease. They had tumors and hemorrhoids and all kinds of problems. And so these guys started playing hot potato with the ark. They're saying, hey, hey, we in Gath, we've had this long enough. Why don't you guys enjoy the ark for a while? And they'd send it over to Gaza. And then Gaza king, they'd be there and they'd be experiencing all this stuff. And then they'd be like, hey, Ashkelon, you guys have the temple of Dagon. You guys should have the ark. We'll send it over there, you know, put it there with the temple as a trophy. And then Dagon falls down. There's all big mess. And finally, after seven months, these five kings of the Philistines, they get together and say, we got to send this thing back. And so they make some articles of gold as a sin offering to the God of this ark. And then they make a new cart they get two milk cows who have calves, but they pin up the calves and they just see what the cows will do and the cows just take this ark straight to Israel. And then it stops. And so it's just in this little town about nine miles north of Jerusalem and it's basically been there ever since. And so now, this is like, you know, so it's been there a few decades. So David then goes to get it, but crazy, David decides to move the ark just like the Philistines move the ark. He makes a new cart, gets the ark loaded on the cart, pulled by oxen, and they head off for Jerusalem. During the journey, an ark stumbles. One of the men there with the ark touches the ark to stabilize it, and he's struck dead by God because nobody's supposed to touch the ark. 
And so then David gets angry. He stops the procession, calls the whole thing off, and he's mad. And we don't know who he's mad at. We don't know if he's mad at God or he's mad at himself or he's mad at Uzzah because you're not supposed to touch the ark. So they don't know. So then, actually, Chronicles tells us this, not Samuel. But in Chronicles, they get together. David calls all the leaders and the Levites and says, hey, what's going on? And then they say, hey, have you ever seen the ark? You see the poles? That's not just decoration. This is a no-brainer. This is carried by the wooden poles that are there with the ark. That's how you carry the ark, and only Levites can carry it. So they get their act together. They go back. They get the ark where they left it. They bring that into Jerusalem. Now David is completely humbled by God. He takes off his crown. He takes off his royal robes, whatever he's accumulated to that point. And then he goes in. He's just in a linen ephod, which is just like a sleeveless vest that comes down to your knees. That's all he's in, kind of like a, what a common man would work in. And he's dancing before God. Every six steps of them moving the ark, they stop, they slaughter an ox and, and a fatted calf. And then they go six more paces and they stop. And David slaughters an ox and a fatted calf all the way to Jerusalem. David's dancing. They get there, they're rejoicing, and then they park the ark in a tent. That's what happens. And now the ark is in Jerusalem. Now David then plans a temple. We just covered six chapters. One more to go. Are you with me? All right. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, Hiram had built, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. He's dominating. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Doesn't seem right, he's saying. So that night, as David is seeking to build a temple of God, God tells Nathan to tell David you're not going to build the temple. And it's because he's a man of war. We talked about a little bit. You know, one of your sons is going to do that. So David is used by God more than he can imagine, but, but he, he gets a little bad news. He can't build the temple. God tells Nathan what to say to David, verse 8. So God's saying, Nathan, tell David this. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. So even though he can't build a temple, God's blessing David. And then comes something called the Davidic covenant. What God promises David, verse 16. He, he mentions you're going to have a son that's going to build the temple. That's Solomon. But anyway, verse 16. Back to David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Strong words, forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David's kingdom is going to endure forever. Well, how, how's that going to happen? What's that all about? What's that mean? But when David hears this, he's completely humbled that God would do this. And here's how he reacts to God's stunning words in verse 18. Then David the king went in 
and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. He's saying, who am I? You've made me king out of nowhere, out of nothing. But that's, that's insignificant to, compared to what you're promising me in the future. What's that all about? And so the immediate future that he promised David was, hey, you're not gonna build the temple, but one of your sons is. That's Solomon. But he's saying, this is what David's talking about. David gets that. But God, you're talking about the distant future. And the distant future is the promise of the coming Messiah from David's family who, who came in the first century and will come again. And this has huge implications for us today. Because, and, and everything we see in the news has, the news has huge implications for us today. Because when Jesus came the first time in the first century, he said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back again. And where's he coming to? Jerusalem. He's coming to Israel and Jerusalem. And he says, but before I come back, there's going to be some wars. And one of them is Russia and Iran together will attack Israel. Russia and Iran are Persia's ways mentioned in the Bible, same country. Iran just renamed from Persia just, you know, within some of our lifetimes. But anyway, so they're going to attack Israel. That, that's prophet. That's going to happen before. And now we're seeing all this, this whole Iran thing, not to mention Russia. But when they attack, no one will defend her. We're right now, we've got Israel's back, right? But it's saying, but then we won't have Israel's back. The United States won't. Why? Well, there's several reasons why that could happen. Number one, this battle, their scholars are split on whether this happens kind of just before the, set, the rapture and the seven years of tribulation or in the middle of the rapture and the seven years of tribulation. So before or after. Well, if it's before, there, there's nothing there. But if it's after, one of the reasons the United States may not support Israel is all the Christians from the United States have been removed. So that's going to change the political landscape of our country. Right, So that, that could be one reason. Uh, another reason is if the United States is embroiled in Ukraine, which we are now and seem to be increasingly so, and possibly Taiwan, that hasn't happened yet, but as far as China is concerned, there may not ever be a better time, then it could be that if we're embroiled in Taiwan and Ukraine, that we just tell Israel, you're on your own. And if you think that can't happen, that's already happened. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, all attacked Israel. All of them. And did what we say? You're on your own because we were embroiled in Vietnam. So we said, you're on your own. After, it's called the Six-Day War because after six days, what happened? Israel conquered the entire Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. They conquered Egypt, occupied Gaza, the same Gaza Strip we talk about in 1967. Israel took that. They took the West Bank from Jordan, 
and they took the Golan Heights, which is on the other side, or the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is high ground called the Bashan in the Bible, where they had been bombing Israel for 20 years, that Israel has been a country at that point. So Israel took that and said, we're stopping this right now. And after six days, the Arab nations all said, hey, ceasefire, ceasefire, give the land back. And Israel did give most of that land back. But, but it's not, that's another way it could happen. You know, we just, we're, we're embroiled with stuff, so we just say you're on your own. Here's another way, though. Have you noticed? I'm telling you what's going to happen, which you all know this. The world is going, and our country will increasingly turn against Israel as they wage this battle in Gaza. How many think that's going to happen? It's going to happen more and more. You know, hey, Hey, it's gonna, hey, you know, hey, we got all those civilians there. Right. Hamas targets civilians. Israel warns the civilians to leave before they strike a certain area in Gaza. But here's what I've never heard in the news. Hamas is not just a terrorist group that operates out of Gaza. Hamas is the duly elected government of Gaza. It's who the, if you want to call them Palestinians, who the Palestinians voted to be in charge of Gaza. The Hamas is Gaza's government. How many have heard that in the news? Yeah. That's what's, so no, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Yeah, we're already, they haven't even begun to retaliate because Israel knows we have to get rid of Hamas Hamas, not hummus. That's, some people like that. Not me, but others. We got to get rid of Hamas. Just, they do. Just like we had to get rid of ISIS. Well, we're not going to have these people just bombing us, attacking us, taking over our planes any willy-nilly, anytime they want. We got to deal with this. That's exactly what Israel's trying to do. The people they lost, I'm sorry, I'm on a roll now. The people they lost during that strike that happened earlier this month in percentage of their population was greater than the people we lost at 9-11. And already people are going, well, easy now. Easy. Sorry. Anyway, Hamas, Gaza's electric government since 07. When Israel, who had occupied them, gave the land back. That worked out real well, didn't it? What am I saying? Why am I on a tangent? Forget all that, all right? I'm saying Israel, we're watching this news play out. Israel and Jerusalem, it's important historically, it's important politically, and most of all, it's important spiritually. Israel is the nation, and Jerusalem is the place that God chose in his redemptive plan to win the world back to him, to die for our sins, to make a way for us, even though we're sinners, to be right with God. Israel and Jerusalem's in the middle of all that, and God's not done with Israel and Jerusalem yet. There's a lot more that's going to happen in biblical prophecy involving those places. But here's what I want to end it with, and it's time. David reflects back on his life here in chapter 7. And he's like, I, I love this phrase. It's important to me personally. He sat before the Lord. I'd never really noticed that before. The reason that sticks in my mind, I think that's so cool, 
is about, you know, two or three times a month, I come in here, I come in here every week and pray when it's dark in here. It's just something I do. You know, we all pray in different places. One of the places I like to pray is in here when I'm talking about my message. But anyway, but a lot of, about every other time I'm here, sometimes then I sit right here with my legs dangling off after I'm done praying. And I look at the light that's filtering through the glass and I think about what God has done here at Grace. I, and I think, God, you've done like a miracle here. It's a small town, a big church. And then, then I'll think about what's happening, you know, in Tiffin and just, and uh, Northwood, just what's happening. And then I'll think that I got to be part of this. And I'll be like, God, why? How did I get to be part of this? I'm the least likely candidate to be a part of this. And that's really what David's saying. You know, this is all of us, who, and we're not all believers, but all of us who are believers here, that's how we should be reacting. God, why did you chose me? You see, God not only chose Israel and Jerusalem and King David and others before him, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all that, but today, if you're a believer, God chose you. God chose you to be a part of his kingdom. God chose you to be a player. God chose you to advance his purposes on this earth today. Why? We don't deserve that. Because God loves us. God's made us a player. And that should humble all of us. That we, no matter where we're at, no matter what we do for a living, we can be used by God to change eternity for other people. Don't ever forget that. And if you're sitting here and you're not in that category, you're not a believer yet. You should know, you should see through this. For thousands and thousands of years, God has been working his redemptive plan because he knows you and he loves you and he's making a way for you to be reconciled to a righteous and holy God in spite of your sin and in spite of the fact that he's a righteous judge and he did that through the gift of Jesus dying on the cross to pay my penalty and your penalty for sin. And you can have a relationship with him forever. Hey, I don't usually get applause like that, so that's pretty cool. But, and if you want to know more about that, I invite you to stop by room one. And we can tell you more about that, answer any question that you might have. And it's natural to have questions. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. Lord, help us to be who you want to, us to be. Lord, and help us to be involved in, in moral issues in our time. Lord, help us to be about your purposes of winning people to you. And Lord, we thank you that we can all be here together striving for that, that same purpose and goal. God, thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.